Hey everyone, we're taking the week off. This week we're re-releasing our episode on the disappearance of Kristen Smart. Since we covered Kristen's case last, a month and a half long preliminary hearing was held to determine whether the case against Paul and Ruben could proceed. The court heard testimony from more than two dozen witnesses, including law enforcement officials, former friends and acquaintances of both Paul and Kristen, cadaver dog handlers, and soil experts. In September 2021, the judge in the case ruled that there was sufficient evidence to move forward to trial. Currently, the trial is set to occur April 25th, 2022. We are also releasing parts two and three of our coverage as part of our re-release so you can get a full picture on all of the events leading up to the trial. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. We've also got an all-new Freaky Friday for you this week where we share listeners' odd but true tales about the paranormal, unexplained, and brushes with true crime. In the meantime, you can head to our Patreon for some bonus content like our mini-sode on Selkies and other brand new weekly bonus content including our favorite segments like Unpopular Opinions, Judge Christie, and True Crime Headlines. Head to patreon.com slash sinisterhood to join today. Thanks so much and keep it creepy. Years passed and the Smart family was no closer to finding answers for what happened to their daughter on May 25, 1996. Once civilians and private detectives stepped in, the family saw some progress. It wasn't until a new sheriff was elected that moves were made. What eventually brought the case close to an end was a breakout podcast that shed new light on the details and unearthed new clues, finally leading to some arrests in the case. This week's episode is The Disappearance of Kristen Smart, Part 3. A bump in the night, your heart fills with dread. Probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I'm gonna kill you. Well, finally... Uh, I saw a live Zoom hearing. I got kicked out of the yeah. San Luis Obispo County D- Criminal Court D- Department Five <laughs> Zoom First conference. First of all, I was, rude. Do they know who out. you are? Uh, my profile picture looked toads profesh. <laughs> I don't know why they kicked me out. Um, it was so I wasn't doing anything what I perceive wrong. So Paul and Ruben Flores went before uh a, a judge in San Luis Obispo County. And the local news station said, FYI, there's going to be a hearing this date, this time. Click here to watch the Zoom hearing. So at the time, the requisite time, I clicked the link. It straight up put me in the actual like participation. My video and audio was on. I turned the camera off. But they could see that I was a person in there. And then it says, you have been removed from this chat by the host. Dang. So I don't think that the news was supposed to publish that Zoom link. Technically, I guess it's how you join, but the people that are actually supposed to be in the Zoom itself participating should only be the parties and their attorneys. The uh, SLO County Court website has the live stream that you can watch only, listen only mode. That is an oopsie-daisy on that journalist part. So track that down, but not before (laughs) just my dumb smiling face. Heather McKinney has joined the Zoom chat. They're like, who is this bitch? (laughs) And it's like you're like Heather McKinney of Sinisterhood. They're doing a three part (laughs) episode right now. Get her out of here. That's right. Uh, They did not want me in there. They're like, she recently called the 
defendant's mom word on the air. <laughs> so I was kicked out. Uh, but I did get to watch the hearing live and it was eerie to watch to be not really in the room, but watching these two people mm-hmm. live, knowing all that we know now based on all of our research. Uh, so it was a strange experience. And Paul was in his cell, right? Or at the court. He was at the jail. jail. He's yeah. at the jail. Yeah. He was at the jail in his a little suit. Um, and then Ruben was in what I think was his attorney's office. So they all appeared via Zoom, and it was a pretty quick hearing, and we'll talk about it towards the end here. But it was a, a strange, I hate to say strange, but just kind of an eerie, surreal thing to be watching mm-hmm. this person live, again, knowing all that we know about what he's done over the last 25, about to be the 25th anniversary here on May 25th, yep. 2021, 25 years. But how amazing that you were watching him from jail finally he's yes even though it took entirely too long he is now in jail awaiting uh, several more hearings before a trial but yes at least he's off the streets and can't hurt anybody right now yes can't drunk drive or assault mm-hmm. women or uh worse yes so and ruben good, is a- out he's he's bonded yes. right i believe he's subject to an electronic monitoring well, he's old as fuck, so I doubt he goes many places anyways. And his attorneys argued that he's in poor health and everything like mm-hmm. that. So, Well, if uh, you haven't listened to the first two episodes, go back and do that. I know a lot of people binge because we get messages that all the time they're like, when is the third one coming out? Always Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. But I'm because I save them up and I binge them all at once, which I get because mm-hmm. we nobody likes to wait around for stuff anymore. We're all uh, in the we're we get that everything gets dropped same time on Netflix or Hulu. It has to get it has mm-hmm. to get. We just started because we're watching Breaking mm-hmm. Bad, and I just finished season three. And of course, it was started getting late, and I told Paris, "Play the next one." I have to know what happens. In se- you know, at the beginning of season four, and he said, "Can you imagine if you were watching mm-hmm. this when it first came out? You would have to wait months to know yeah. what happened." I said, "Not anymore. Not with the streaming nope. service. No, nope. I go right into the next one." So I get it. I'm the same way. I don't want to watch anything until it's done so that I don't have to wait because I am very impatient. I get so I feel it. you guys. I get it. So now you can want you. It's time. Listen to all three right in a row right now and you'll be all caught up. And um, yeah, this is this is the end. This is I'm so glad that um, this one has I don't want to say a happy ending because, of course, it's not no. but a resolution at least uh, on the way to a resolution. Mm-hmm. So we're at least it's not a totally, you know, like some of the disappearance cases where there's no leads yes. at all. Yeah. So here there's been a lead for 25 years. Yeah, that's the thing. The more I research and read about this, I got some opinions. We'll, uh, we'll yeah. go over them at the end, but I got some hot takes. Actually, I don't think it's a hot take. I think no, it's just I think what it's... a lot of people also think. It's consensus take. Yes. yes. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. On September 12, 2001, one day after the terrorist attacks in New York, 41-year-old Dennis Mann quit his job in Charlotte, North Carolina, moved across the country to pursue justice on Kristen Smart's behalf. Only having met Denise and Stan Smart a few years prior, Dennis was now leaving his life behind in hopes of getting answers for the Smart family regarding the disappearance of their daughter, a young woman Dennis had never met. Dennis Mann is something else. It's uh, it's a years long dedication that he's he's committed to this family and made, 
I think made some strides one way or the other, however you want to look at it. He says on your own backyard in his interview that he just always wanted to do something with his life and kind of, you know, leave a mark. And this is how he chose to do it. It started off because he became obsessed with a case of another uh, just ironically also named Kristen, Kristen Modafferi, that was from his hometown went missing. And he kind of became obsessed with finding out what happened to her, quit his job then to go search Mm -hmm. for her through Kristen Modafferi's mom. She was on Sally Jesse Raphael with Kristen Smart's mom about daughters going missing. And so he met her that way through Kristen Modafferi's mom and started helping this family, too. And it takes a certain individual to leave your entire life behind, move across the country. His car broke down halfway across the country. He bought a new used car. It wasn't like he said, oh, well, that was I tried, but now I'm going to go back home. He just nothing deterred him. Powering through. Mm -hmm. And I think it's funny because in 2001, you may look at this and go, that's weird that he's trying to solve a crime and he's not a professional detective. But now we've Mm -hmm. seen Michelle McNamara and Chris Lambert and someday Christy and other (laughs) who have taken that hell, you know, taken that on and said, I'm going to look at it. And the the investigators say as well, it's good to have somebody with a fresh set of eyes looking Mm -hmm. at it. And especially this gentleman has no... uh, He doesn't really have the same restraints on him as the police, as we will see. No, and he also gives almost less fucks than the police do. Nope. He just, he does what he wants. Mm -hmm. It's great. Upon arriving in Arroyo Grande, man boldly headed straight to Susan Flores' house on East Branch Street, hoping she would be willing to speak with him. When her boyfriend, Mike McConville, answered the door, he asked to make a copy of man's ID before refusing to answer any questions. It's a pretty bold move. Just give me the ID. Well, going to the house is bold and then taking his driver's license and copying it. Yeah. I imagine they just kept a file of all the reporters and stuff that came by the house. And so they True. knew never that they didn't want to talk to him. Undeterred, man went back to the house five days later. This time, Susan called the cops, who told Dennis he had to leave the property. However, before leaving, Ruben Flores showed up and began taking pictures of Dennis When the police explained to Dennis that Reuben wasn't doing anything illegal since Dennis was on public property, the street, it gave Dennis an idea. Knowing he could not be arrested as long as he remained on public property, Dennis began showing up daily to the East Branch Street home to snap photos of Susan. He then uploaded them to a website he had built dedicated to the Flores' involvement in the Kristen Smart case, sonofsusan.com, which later became digupthyard.com. Here, Dennis posted photos, updates on the investigation, and live entries from his stakeouts in front of Susan's house. He, uh, yeah, just, this was his job now. He he got it. he had nothing but time. He got a job at Domino's when he got into town and worked with a bunch of college kids and told Chris Lambert he kind of took that job so he could be around the college scene. And when he would deliver pizzas to the Cal Poly campus, he would ask the students if they knew anything, which might be a bit unnerving if you're just trying to order a pepperoni pizza pizza and all of a sudden you get asked questions about a missing persons case. But he he was dedicated. Yeah, I mean, he if this is all you got to do, 
then you got plenty of time mm-hmm. to just stake out the house of these folks. Mm-hmm. On April 27, 2002, Dennis showed up at the East Branch home per his usual routine. And once again, Susan Flores called the cops. As Dennis stood in front of the house talking to the police, Susan emerged from the house and began to attack him. She was detained and placed in one of the cruisers. From here, with the window rolled down, Dennis told Chris Lambert on your own backyard that Susan yelled at him. Yeah, Paul killed Kristen and he also killed that Matafiti girl too. Matafiti was a reference to Kristen Mataferi, a young woman that had gone missing from San Francisco in 1997. In addition to helping the Smarts find justice for their Kristen, Dennis had also been helping the Mataferi family. That, Why? Yeah. What? Uh, what? Uh. <laughs> what? She screamed out the window, Paul killed Kristen and the Mataferi girl, too. So she obviously knew mm-hmm. who Dennis was if she knew he was working on that case or helping that family. What would possess you to shout that in the presence of the police at all to anyone ever, but primarily in front of the police. Well, if the police don't care. Also true. They're not going to do anything. Maybe, it's 2002. Yeah. This, this, the cops that were in charge in 2002 didn't give a fuck. Maybe. Yeah. Yell whatever you want. <laughs> but why would you, even if your son had not done this, which he totally did, why would you joke that? And implicate your uh, yeah. your son like that. Yeah, that's a strange. I'm, I don't know. I've only been doing comedy since 2007. I don't know uh, anything about jokes. <laughs> but uh, I would say yelling uh, that your son did a crime that he definitely did. I was a bad move and not a funny joke. I don't see what's I didn't laugh when no. I read that. I gasped. I was uh, horrified. And. I mean, she's been awarded. She got the award last episode, but give it to her again. Another C moment. She gets the golden C. Yeah, she's been up for it twice. She's won it both times. You know what? She's sweeping the category. She's Mm -hmm. the only nominee. (laughs) Why would you? I don't know. I could belabor this for a long time, but to invoke the name of another crime victim who didn't have shit to do with your dirtbag son, we think, then there's no no need for that except being tacky. Mm Mm-hmm. Three months later, in July of 2002, Susan Flores filed a restraining order against Dennis, which ordered him to stay at least 50 yards from the Flores family, including Susan's boyfriend, Mike McConville. Rather than give up and head back to North Carolina, Dennis changed his course of action, this time with his focus on Susan's backyard. Armed with signs reading, Dig Up the Yard, Dennis walked the Cal Poly campus, asking every student he saw to sign his petition demanding that the sheriff's department dig up the backyard at 529 East Branch Street once and for all. This is not an unreasonable ask. Uh, no. No. Given the evidence that was found, the cadaver dogs that alerted, the earring, the watch beeping, the weird grave-shaped planter box, I can't imagine why it wasn't dug up prior to that. No. So he was not, it's not like he's uh, some unhinged person that's asking for just like these totally un- unaffiliated people to be bothered he wants the he's asking for the police to do their Mm -hmm. jobs what it sounds like over the next few years dennis continued his search for answers while the sheriff's investigation appeared to be at a standstill at a town hall meeting in 2005 dennis mann addressed the arroyo grande residents including susan flores and mike mcconville passionately espousing that nine years was far too long for Kristen's case to remain unsolved 
after finishing his speech, Dennis told Chris Lambert he headed back to a conference room to pick up one of his signs. There, he claims he saw Mike McConville and the chief of police relaxing in some chairs and shooting the shit. The men seemed chummy, leading Dennis to say, Well, this explains a lot. And there, folks, might lie a lot of the uh, answers to our questions. You know, this is based on Dennis Mann and what he told Chris Lambert, but taking it uh, on its face, yeah, that makes a lot of sense why there would be no uh, forensic search of houses, why there would be no combing of the physical evidence other than the ocular pat-downs that they like to do. If, If you're chummy with someone involved, for sure. And we will see later that Mike may have been way more involved than any of us knew. Mm-hmm. In 2005, following the relentless pursuit of the Flores family by Dennis Mann, Susan Flores and Mike McConville filed a lawsuit against Denise and Stan Smart, alleging emotional distress caused by Mann, whom they claimed had been hired by the Smarts and therefore were responsible for his actions. As part of the discovery process, another excavation of the Flores family yard was conducted on March 31, 2007 according to KSBY News. Nothing was uncovered. However, Professor Larry Conyers, the ground-penetrating radar expert who was brought in to conduct the search, told Chris Lambert that certain areas of the yard were off-limits, including the west side of the yard, where the Lassiters had heard the eerie beeping, and the east side of the house, where the earring and trash can had been located. The excavation crew was also barred from using ground-penetrating radar on the planter area, a limitation negotiated by the Flores' lawyers. Yeah, it was, it's one of those where their attorney directly negotiated with the Flores' attorney and said, okay, to prove that this is this lawsuit as a defense, so as part of discovery, we need to prove that even if Dennis Mann was acting on their behalf, they're not causing you undue emotional distress because this is a true thing that's going on. This would be our defense. So, as part of discovery, let us look at the yard. And they're like, absolutely, for sure. Except that part, also that part, not that part either. Also that part, we built a garage over that part. So they were allowed to look at certain, maybe not super helpful areas. And the journalist on the scene who talked to Chris Lambert said that Susan Flores was very defiant and was basically saying, search wherever you want, you're not going to find anything. But meanwhile, in her opinion, Ruben Flores was on pins and needles, Mm -hmm. like biting his fingernails, worried about what they were going to find. But again, because the planter area wasn't able to be searched and because the area where the trash can was where the cadaver dogs had previously alerted where the earring was found, that a garage was built over that, that the ground penetrating radar was having trouble with the rebar used underneath that garage area. So then they couldn't figure out, okay, well, is that really is that a human bone or is that a piece of rebar or a piece of moved uh, piece of moved earth? So also. Uh, Conyers, Professor Conyers, who's the expert in the field, said in 2005, this was a super young industry. Mm-hmm. The now the the material or the machines that you use to do this are so much more advanced. But it's almost as if someone knew that a bunch of rebar laid in concrete might fuck with some machines if they ever came back mm-hmm. and tried to look at stuff again. Look for stuff. And then also the journalist pointed out that this search was conducted on March 31st, 2005. Seven, and that once they finished the search and um, 
Larry Conyers was able to find a couple of anomalous spots where there was some weird, well, I think one had some cans in it, but some some strange spots. And they were able to come back and dig some areas that between that occurring and then the police ever showing up was several weeks to months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was time if you've been searched and the expert goes, huh, there's some weird stuff back here. You as the homeowner of Branch Street have several months to do whatever mm-hmm. you want to do to help yourself mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, make some renovations as it were in the backyard the journalist also said that the backyard and the garage were just littered with garbage and boxes tools tools maybe that's how it always was but they sure didn't decide to do them any favors by cleaning stuff up and larry conyer said he basically could only go down the middle of the garage because there was just boxes and tools and storage and shit everywhere. And they weren't moving it. So he said, if somebody goes back and redoes that, you need to take everything out of the garage, which why wasn't that done then? Uh, Every time they go to search any of these properties, it's so Mm half-assed. You go through all the trouble of getting the search warrants and being able to Mm -hmm. do it. And then they just mail it in, and it's almost as if it's just a smoke show. It's like a waste of time. Well, and this one, you know, Larry Conyers is the best in the industry and really, really, really did a good job with what area he was mm-hmm. allowed to search. Again, because it was negotiated between the Smarts lawyers and the Flores' lawyers as part of the civil suit, they're only, it's not like they got a search warrant that said you can search the whole backyard, which they got before and then failed to do. Yep. In this case, they said you can search anything you want except for the following five suspicious areas. You are not allowed to go near them at all. So, again, it's just time after time that, I, I mean, what do you do, though, if you're the smarts lawyer and you say, let us search your backyard? And she says, okay, but only this area. Do you go, no, fuck you. Like, we want to search the whole thing. And it's part, it's by agreement. So, you you know, then she may say, okay, you're not allowed to search anything at all. So you take what you can get. It's wild that they would say you can't search these areas because that makes you look so suspicious. But if the cops aren't doing anything, then I guess you just don't give a shit. I mean, you're take. I think you take what you can get and maybe hope that even if they say, okay, you can't use GPR on the planter box, but maybe you have. Conyer, Professor Conyers do it next to the planter box and see if there's anything anomalous. So, I mean, I guess you just say, okay, we'll get right, right, right up against the edge and then see if there's anything we can use to take to the police. Then, of course, they tell the police and then nobody comes for several weeks to months. So it's not like it's helpful. Well, and Conyers said that the way that the machine was, it wouldn't fit in some of the planter boxes because mm-hmm. they were right up against the house. And Susan refused to let them take some of the bricks that were kind of sectioning it off away to make room for it. So I guess that was how she justified not allowing them to search, that it was going to be messing up her, her backyard or something. But I'm saying from... The Flores perspective, how do you justify telling them, no, you can't search in these areas without looking super suspicious? I think you don't care. They don't seem to care that they look suspicious. That's <laughs> true. Shit. They don't. She screamed, my son yeah. killed Kristen Smart and the Mata Fairy girl. They're not. The, this is not a very tactical family from what I can tell. They seem pretty brazen. And I think a lot of that comes with they've gotten away with stuff for so long. 
And if your boyfriend is shooting the shit with the police, mm-hmm. I don't think it matters. You, you, you negotiate what you want to negotiate. Ian Parkinson took over as sheriff for the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Department in 2011. Early in his tenure, he met with the Smarts. They told reporters they were impressed with Parkinson's knowledge of the case and related to him as a father of teenage girls. Parkinson made some other changes, too, including appointing an internal affairs officer to oversee the behavior of officers in the department. Parkinson told the New Times Slow, If officers make mistakes and they do something that's improper, they will be held accountable. Parkinson went on to say he made these changes in the wake of his predecessor, Pat Hedges, stating, The concerns were about whether we have been policing our own and whether there has been accountability. Under Hedges, the department had to pay out millions in lawsuits, according to the New Times. Yeah, apparently the last uh, crew, the last uh, sheriff's department uh, was kind of loose with the rules that he preferred to say, if you did something wrong, your own supervisor gets to decide what your punishment is. And there was lawsuits for various personal injuries, uh, lawsuits against, you know, officers and things like that. So I think Parkinson wanted to come in and say, this is a new regime, a new era. Please don't think of us as the Keystone Cops anymore. We promise we are keeping a tight ship around here. This is the third sheriff this case has seen. Mm -hmm. And the third sheriff, the smarts now have to essentially start over with. Mm -hmm. But he seemed to give them a little more hope than the previous two. Mm-hmm. Despite Parkinson's vow of rededication to Kristen's case, not much happened in the way of the investigation until his second term, when, on September 6, 2016, law enforcement dug up a site on the edge of Cal Poly's campus, half a mile from where Kristen was last seen. The large letter P on the side of the hill was an iconic landmark to the campus, and one that had been searched in the previous years. Because of this, The Smarts and the San Luis Obispo community were confused with Parkinson's decision to focus efforts there rather than Susan Flores' backyard. While the FBI stated they found items of interest during the excavation, according to ABC News, they have not made their findings public. And the deputies that have talked to the media have insisted that between 2011 and 2016, there was tons of movement in the case and somebody was always working on it. There was just not public announcements of it all to the extent that would make you look better or maybe that's really what happened so and on your own backyard he discusses how even if there were updates and stuff going on the smarts didn't seem to get those updates Mm -hmm. yeah so that's the problem was there was a some sort of breakdown in communication early on that seemed to to, at least after the podcast came out (laughs) seemed to open up the channels of communication a little bit more. But they had tried to, I think as part of the uh, one of the civil suits that the Smarts had tried to subpoena some of the information and they were denied mm-hmm. the subpoena because the um, the sheriff's office said this is open and ongoing investigation. We're not turning anything over. They would so. try every year and every year mm-hmm. they were told this is ongoing and active, but then nothing was happening and Kristen's body still wasn't being found. So as mm-hmm. the family... You're like, is it active and ongoing? Because nothing seems to be happening here. Yeah, it's one of those, just how you have to trust us. Since 2011, a team of investigators and forensic specialists within the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office have executed 18 search warrants, submitted 37 items for DNA testing that they recovered from the initial investigation, recovered 140 new items of evidence, 
and conducted 91 interviews, according to the New York Times. So there's obviously been some kind of movement. We just, again, they haven't been announcing it. Although if you have some kind of evidence that you know her body is in one place and you think if this gets announced to the public, they're going to move it or destroy it or do something, maybe you do try to play your cards a little bit closer to the vest. Mm. May 25th, 2016 marked the 20th anniversary of Kristen's disappearance. Her family issued a statement at the time saying, She was a girl with dreams and visions for the future. We plan to find a way for them to live on. According to Dateline NBC. The following year, Kristen's mother, Denise, announced the Kristen Smart Scholarship Fund, which states on kristensmart.org that it is a way to celebrate and remember Kristen's life, hopes, dreams, and ambitions by financially helping other young women realize theirs. That's very nice. Yeah, it's, you know, it's always with these cases where, you know, like Jaina Murray, where the family loses Mm -hmm. such a vibrant young person with a a ton of passions and a brilliant future, but then finds a way to help other people, you know, whatever they're into that Krista was into or what schools they want to go to and and finds a way to try to make some good out of the bad. It doesn't help, but it, it at least is a positive way to like let her memory live on. Yeah. Kristen was super into architecture and that's one reason she chose Cal Poly. So one of the things that the scholarship helps with are other young women that are interested in that, but also because females have been so underrepresented on Kristen's case, Mm -hmm. women interested in law enforcement and wanting to pursue a degree in that are also, um, can, can also apply for it. Yeah, that's what they wanted to, you know, her, she loved international relations and traveling and things like that. So that's one of them. But then you're right. Also, forensic science or something mm-hmm. to, to get a. they said it's important to have the uh, a woman's perspective, insight and intuition in investigating cases. And so it's there. The scholarship funds are there to increase the number of women in law enforcement. I think that's great. Absolutely. That same year, on July 7th, 2017, reporter David Smallwood complained to the district attorney about the sheriff's department, arguing that the department should examine evidence discovered at the properties adjacent to the East Branch backyard by retired police officer Paul Dosti, his cadaver dog Buster, and a forensic anthropologist named Dr. Arpad Vass. David Smallwood. He's, he's quite a character. He is a character, yes. He, I came across his publication, the California Register, doing research. And while reading it, I kept thinking to myself, this is salty. This yeah. person is, is bold to make kind of these defamatory claims and yeah. walks the edge of possibly getting sued by some of the stuff he says, but he yeah. does not seem to care. New, no, he, he started his own thing. He's his own editor and, he writes with his own voice. So you, you know what? Pursue that. He's also very interested in using these new technologies to uh, Dr. Arpad Vass is interviewed on your own backyard. He works out of, the, out of Tennessee, out of the Oak Ridge lab in Tennessee. Shout out to my Tennessee Hill people. It's my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and has this interesting new device. And David Smallwood kind of, th- it seemed from his interview that this was the, he thought this was kind of the smoking gun that these two pieces of evidence together would really just crack, crack it open, wide open. And that's not, he did not get the response that he wanted from the sheriff's department. No, he did not. With the assistance of Smallwood, the search had been conducted in 2014. 
after gaining access to both of Susan Flores' neighbors' backyards on either side of her property, Buster alerted to the Flores' backyard on both occasions, according to the complaint to the sheriff. Then Dr. Vast used new technology and a DNA sample from Denise Smart to find evidence of Kristen's DNA at both the Flores' house on East Branch Street and in Paul Flores' dorm room. Nothing publicly was done with this information at the time, which led to Smallwood's complaint. So they got access to the neighbor's backyard and used the cadaver dog, which they go into the history and accolades of this cadaver dog. And it's very impressive what this dog mm-hmm. has done and how many body bodies he's recovered. He immediately goes and alerts at the corner where the planter would be on the other side of the fence. Mm-hmm. Then they get access to the other neighbor's yard. Same thing. He alerts, Mm -hmm. right, so they also take soil samples from one of the neighbor's backyard, send it off to a lab, and there are small amounts of human uh, remains and decomp in it, which Mm -hmm. Dr. Vass said would you would expect it to be a very trace amount because it's on the other side of the fence. But by all accounts, this is pretty damning evidence and, again, just kind of confirms what everyone's been saying, yet nothing was done with it. Yeah, and it's either they're private citizens, so they don't yes. have the same restrictions as, you know, the police, what they're working with, as long as they got the permission of the landowners. And they didn't really even need that, you know, then they can take that. What they did was they took this evidence, gave it to the sheriff's department. And, you know, I think we very carefully said nothing publicly was done with this because we don't know if they did look into it after that, you know, mm-hmm. it, but there was no announcement that said, OK, based on this, we're now going to go get a search warrant um, and look. And we had because we were asking for questions about the case amanda pacheco on instagram asked if a civilian took the risk of trespassing and destruction of property and went to the property and found Kristen's remains would the investigators or the da still be able to prosecute the murder or would that civilian's actions put that at risk i mean that's kind of what's happening here right Mm -hmm. we have these non you know it's a journalist a scientist and a uh cadaver dog handler walk into a bar Mm -hmm. you know there's these three they're, they're not acting at the behest of the authorities so you know they could use the evidence the the da could use the evidence it's a rule called the Bordeaux rule and it's from a 1920s case that says you know the fourth amendment is not applicable to searches by private parties so if the search is clearly illegal which you know they jump the fence and steal the the dirt or whatever then it it doesn't matter because the fourth amendment protects citizens from unlawful searches by the government so you know if you're private citizen like these folks were and you get this you get the evidence, you turn over to the police, the police could use it. The problem is the police can't immediately make a warrantless entry into the house. But if the police wanted to obtain a warrant, you know, they have to show there's probable cause to a neutral third party, which is a judge, to believe that a search is justified. The officers just have to support that showing with affidavits, sworn statements, and then they have to describe, okay, it was this side of the fence. It was by this corner of this yard on this street. And the, and say, we're going to search this corner these days and times. I mean, they would be able to use this evidence as the basis for their warrant. Um, but, you know, you you can't have like a general, well, we had some people tell us they think, you know, all the all the people on the Internet are telling us they think that this that, you know, this woman's remains are in this person's backyard. That's not specific evidence. But if you said, hey, we have this dirt that has a match to DNA or this dirt shows that there's human remains you know, that I think a judge could look at that and say that is probable cause for a search warrant. And just because the initial evidence came from a 
a search by a private citizen, even if it's an illegal search by a private citizen, and by illegal, I mean, you know, they jumped the fence or stole something or whatever, um, the, the police could use that as the basis of their warrant. They just couldn't use it to go kick the door in on their own. Um, then, you know, it would be up to Paul to try to exclude that evidence by a, what's called the preponderance of the evidence, which is just more likely than not. And you would have to try to prove that Arpod Voss, Smallwood, and Dosey were working on behalf of the San Luis County Obispo Sheriff's Office. So you'd have to say, these people were agents of the government. Because they're agents, this was warrantless. Because it was warrantless, it violates my Fourth Amendment. This evidence has to be excluded. But if you can show that they're, and I think based on David Smallwood's years of complaints that the sheriff's department is ignoring him, I think it's very easy to show we didn't ask this guy to do any of this. Mm-hmm. And they're big. I think Smallwood said that, you know, he believes that the a sheriff's department didn't take the cadaver dogs finding seriously because their license lapsed, the dog's license mm-hmm. lapsed. But like they said, a dog is trained as he's trained. It's not like your license lapsed and the dog's like, I'm going to bark at anything now. Right. You know, dog didn't give a fuck. So, so uh, Amanda had a great question. She also said, just so you know, I live in Massachusetts and I'm broke. So this is hypothetical as in she's not going to vigilante <laughs> drive over to their house. But, and I'm not telling anybody to break any laws or go get the evidence, especially now there seems like there's a lot of you know, movement, you don't want to mess the case up. But to the extent that you're digging around and you find something, then there's no way for them to exclude it. I would say turn it to the police and um, and make sure that the police have a hold of it, which is what it sounds like Smallwood and them try to do here. But there would be no grounds to exclude it unless Paul could prove by the by a preponderance of the evidence that these three folks were working on the sheriff's That account. was my question, because when you were saying it, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to citizens, I was thinking... Wow, if you were a cop working a case and you couldn't get into someone's backyard, but you had a hunch, you could send someone over and then, but if that came back on you, then yeah, it would blow up in your face. One of the examples they give us in school is like, if you're at, and this doesn't apply to, you know, private citizen doesn't apply like, you know, if you're getting searched by the TSA or something like that, but there's whole other rules for that (laughs) was way beyond the scope of this. But the example they give in school is like, if you're at a mall and a security guard searches your bag and finds that you stole lip gloss, then they can go and tell the police, hey, I searched your bag and there's lip gloss. But a cop on the premises couldn't say, hey, security guard, search that girl's bag for me. Because, again, that's you're directing them to do it. You're acting as an agent. So if they do it on their own, like this case, you know, a small wooden them, I don't see why that would not be used uh, mm-hmm. to get another search warrant. I think maybe one reason Maybe Smallwood isn't taken very seriously. That could be a problem, too. approach to things. I think that might have been a problem for uh, Dennis Mann as well. You know, it's funny you say that there's a case called Illinois versus Gates that they say that when you're the judge is deciding whether to issue a warrant, the judge has to consider the totality of the circumstances. And that includes the informant's veracity reliability and their basis for knowledge. So you're exactly right. I mean, if, if you took if you as an officer were trying to take this to a judge and for some reason he had a bad reputation in the community, if that's the guy that complains to us every mm-hmm. year, he's always sending us these complaints, even if he's right, you know, whether his all of his complaints were right or even one of them, you know, broke clocks right twice a day, you know, the judge could take that into consideration mm-hmm. and go, oh, that's the person that makes all these wild complaints. Oh, I don't trust them. No. Or that's the person that upended their life to come look for someone they'd never even met mm-hmm. what kind of person does that yeah so and it's fair or unfair that's that's mm-hmm. the standard is the judge gets to make that call 
a former singer-songwriter and recording engineer and current freelance journalist and podcaster, Chris Lambert launched his podcast, Your Own Backyard, in September of 2019. Over the course of eight episodes, Lambert covered all details of Kristen's disappearance and the investigation. The podcast was a success. It kept attention on the case, and Sheriff Ian Parkinson of the County Sheriff's Department said in a press conference, What Chris did with the podcast was put it out nationally to bring in new information. It did produce some new information that I believe was valuable. That's a dream, Heather. I know you you it's he really again it's it's amazing how excellent the podcast is not just in terms of production value because you know he has a recording engineer and and all that but just in terms of his writing and Mm -hmm. his ability to interview and he kind of says this is my first time doing I mean he's just great and not only that people are more comfortable in talking to he has a you know a lovely voice Mm -hmm. it's very warm and inviting that someone maybe hesitant to speak with authorities would happily speak to him. And then he was able to be a conduit and say, Hey, you know, I think you need to speak to authorities. Mm -hmm. The, that is so invaluable. And again, not acting at the behest of the police at all. I mean, afterwards they said, thanks. Yeah. But they wouldn't, didn't say, Hey, let's make a podcast about this and see if we can drum up some leads. No, not at all. According to Lambert, Paul Flores has continued to drink heavily in the years since Kristen's disappearance with KSBY NBC News, reporting that Flores has been charged with three DUIs over the years and served an eight-month sentence for violating his probation in May of 2002. Unsurprisingly, Lambert also confirmed that Paul's behavior has continued around women. When Paul's only girlfriend was interviewed on Your Own Backyard, she described him to Lambert as strange, an alcoholic, and both physically and emotionally abusive. On more than one occasion, The woman said Paul would become extremely intoxicated and act as if he wanted to confess something big right before passing out. This was also an eerie interview, hearing Mm -hmm. her perspective of it. And she says, you know, this was pre-internet for me to really, like, search him. I couldn't figure this out. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why you always get that last name and run that search. Well, she said... After they broke up, she finally got her own laptop and she started, as we all do when we get our first computer, Googling our Mm ex-boyfriends. And that's when she realized, oh, my God, I've been dating someone that's been connected to this case and is a possible murderer. And she said his family was very odd. They were very involved in his life. They also were really rude to her Mm. when he she met Ruben for the first time. He goes, this is the girl you've been spending all your money on. Why don't you make her pay for stuff every now and then? Nice to meet you as well, (laughs) Mr. Flores. And then when they went to his mom's house, she said they were walking around and she said, why would somebody put a giant missing person sign right next to your mom's house? That's so tacky and rude. Yeah. Yes. And Ruben also has a bunch of avocado trees on -hmm. his property. And a lot of there's been a lot of speculation that perhaps Kristen is buried around there or has been buried around there. And this woman chose to remain anonymous. So I don't know what her name is, but she said she wanted to walk around out there because she was like, oh, there's avocado trees. And they were like, no, no, come in the house. It's fine. We don't need to go out there. Hmm. She said it was there were a lot of secrets in the family. And then, you know, he'd get really, really drunk and say, I really need to tell you something. I, I, and then he would just pass out before he could tell her anything. And that one time after they'd broken up, he called her drunk and was about to say something. And she could hear his mom in the background go, Paul, hang up the phone. 
Oh, these she knows. Susan yeah. Flores one hundred percent knows, and well, she's we'll been trying out. to keep her kid out of uh, jail for twenty five years. Yeah, I think there was a point at maybe which she did not know, but she the sure knows now mm-hmm. based on several witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, someone else, Carrie on Instagram, asked us how come he didn't go to jail for longer because he's had at least three three DUIs mm-hmm. and. He, uh, you know, it says he served 240 days in jail, but that was just really for pro- violating the probation after the last one. Yeah, he, lack of, he was drinking at a bar and part of his probation was he couldn't drink. You got to stay sober. Yeah, it's kind of I won't say it's super strange. I mean, in California, DUIs are called priorable offenses. So later sentences can be increased based on previous convictions. So, I mean, he's clearly a serial offender with this, but it really depends on what county you're getting arrested in. Some counties are harsher than others. And so some counties have a mandatory minimum stay in jail after your third offense. Not all counties have that. Some arrests involve more evidence than others. So if you get a good defense attorney and there's some glitch with the processing of the uh, the breathalyzer or the if they have you do a walk and there's something wrong with the video footage, there's a lot of real nitty ways that you can attack evidence in a DUI case, which would lead... Uh, a district attorney to plead it down or, you know, accept a shorter sentence. Normally, if you're going to go to jail for a DUI in California, it's something huge. Like your BAC is higher than, you know, 0.15 or you caused an accident because you're going 90 miles an hour or if there are kids in the car with you or if you're under age and drunk driving or if you get pulled over and they want to do a test and you, uh, you know, blood test and you, you know, refuse the blood test. Those can cause uh, earlier offenses to get bumped up or to get more jail time. But he, you know, from 1997 to his, when was his third one? And that was another thing. I was trying to find the dates that he was arrested. Um, Let's say May 2002. So yeah, you know, your fourth DUI within 10 years in California is a mandatory jail time felony. So, I mean, he was on the cusp because if Mm -hmm. it was between 97 and 2000, yeah, well, so he, why didn't he get jail time? Uh, we have a broken system. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think the idea is that you don't immediately throw somebody in jail for DUI on their first offense because you want to rehabilitate them. Hopefully that they, they can go to alcohol management classes. They can do community service. But in a case like this where he and, and I did not read any place that he caused an accident or hurt anyone that that's totally different. If you injure or kill someone while you're drunk driving, that's a whole different set of uh, set of. Uh, sentences and whatnot but you know he's clearly not being rehabilitated betwixt his sentencing and that is especially evident if his violation if his probation says you cannot drink and yet you continue to drink that to me says you're not being rehabilitated you're not following whatever the plan is for you to live an alcohol-free life so Mm -hmm. he didn't go to jail because sometimes certain counties you get arrested in are a little bit looser with the punishment Ah, uh, and because it wasn't his fourth in 10 years, so it wasn't a mandatory felony. So, mm. yeah, the person, Carrie said, how has he never been jailed for the multiple, multiple DUIs? She, yeah. Uh, and those are just the ones he got pulled over and ticketed for. Yes, yes. And not to mention, you know, as we'll hear, there's uh, evidence of some other much, in my opinion, worse crimes than DUI mm-hmm. that he was not arrested for yet. Near the end of January 2020. The San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Office agreed to speak on the record to Chris Lambert. Commander Nathan Paul, the lead investigator on the Smart case from 2014 to 2017, addressed a question regarding whether the previous two sheriff's administrations had dropped the ball. Paul told Lambert, Is it safe to say mistakes were made? I don't think you could argue that. 
He said he would like a time machine to go back to May of 1996 and do things right the first time. It is frustrating to look back and see some of the mistakes that were made. Lambert asked for specifics, to which Nate replied, There are many. I wish many things were done differently. Things that are in the public that outrage the public upset me as well and upset many people here. He also confirmed that since 2011, all the investigators were new to the case and therefore had not been responsible for the previous blunders. Commander Paul also told Lambert that his podcast has been extremely positive and beneficial for the case as it generated leads that the department has followed up on. Yeah, I think that if I were the cold case detective that was, you know, put on the case or, you know, the previous one or this one, you definitely want to bifurcate and say, listen, Mm -hmm. there was a before and after and anything before 2011 was fuckery and we did not have anything to do with that. We've been diligently working at least since, you know, 2014. But I mean, 2011 is is what they the kind of the line they try to draw in the sand. It's, it's taken 10 years. Is that bad? Yeah. But at least, you know, at least something's happened. Imagine do, maybe if they hadn't come around, we'd yeah. know we'd still be back how it was in 2007. Yeah. It's still, you know, stymied or whatever. And having mm-hmm. the, a sheriff that actually punishes people for wrongdoing, I think you want that accountability on the force. And you see that it's leading to and also having people who's, you know, having law enforcement officers who are willing to entertain this new form of media, something that it mm-hmm. could, okay, this is great for the case, not, oh, some journalist is poking around. And he even says, I can't remember if it was um, Commander Paul or the uh, the other gentleman who said, oh, uh, I listened to the first few episodes before I agreed to talk to you. And, you know, mm-hmm. you hear how well it's done and how he really is trying to put the evidence out there and how many people are willing to participate. I think, yeah, you take any help you can get as a mm-hmm. law enforcement officer if you give a shit about solving it. If you were just trying to coast by and you don't care, then yeah, you would ignore this. I think it'd be easy to ignore it. Yeah, Lambert said a lot of people that he was trying to get in contact with, he didn't hear from from a while. And then after a few episodes of it out, they would contact him and say, well, I've listened, so now I'm willing to talk to you. Yeah. With the renewed interest in the case, thanks to your own backyard, the Smarts were hopeful the investigation would see some movement. So when Denise was contacted in January 2020 by a retired FBI agent who told her they had new information, the family held their breath that their nightmare might be coming to an end soon. According to the Stockton record, the agent, who had remained close to the family over the years, told them, Be ready. This is really going to be something you don't expect. We want to give you the support you need. Eleven days later, two trucks owned by the Flores family in 1996 were taken in as evidence. A week after that, on February 5th, search warrants were served at four different properties authorities believed contained evidence related to Kristen's disappearance. Two in San Luis Obispo, one in L.A. County, and one in Washington State, where Paul's sister lives. Tony Cipolla, a spokesman for the San Luis Obispo County Sheriff's Office, told the New York Times they had found... Some items of interest. But said he was unable to further elaborate. A fifth warrant was served at Paul's home in San Pedro, California on April 22nd. Items of interest that the police recovered from there included decades-old cell phones, computer towers, and other electronics. They're going to get you. Man. So I remember when... I remember reading how Denise was contacted that... 
there was going to be a big break in the case soon. And I wasn't really familiar with Kristen's case at the time, but I remember everyone on our Facebook Patreon group going mm-hmm. wild, like, yes. oh my gosh, they're about to announce it. I've always thought it was Paul Flores. They're going to, something's coming. And so I started kind of reading about it, but nothing, nothing really ever came of that. There wasn't yeah. this big reveal of, and this is what she was told. Or and this is what we uncovered or even and this is the arrest we made because this was mm-hmm. in early 2020. I do mm-hmm. remember the the Patreon Facebook group. So many posts were basically this is obviously Paul Flores. It's been him from the start, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. And not knowing anything about the case and being, you know, how I am as a lawyer. You can't just say that. <laughs> then I read, read like a paragraph on it. I was like, oh, yeah, for sure. It's <laughs> They were right. Sorry, guys. Sorry I ever doubted you. Uh, I like to, you know, reserve my judgment. I want to look into all the facts. It takes not even that many facts to go. Oh, no, they were everyone's right on mm-hmm. the Patreon page. Yeah, they're, they're always right on the Patreon page. So what do you think this retired FBI agent was giving her a heads up about that you're not going to be ready for it? Because to me, all of this is that everyone's known. And especially the smarts. Well, I think making the move on the trucks because they had sold the trucks and gotten rid of them or it hit, you know. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that right? They had sold them. Uh, one they traded in and one they claimed was stolen. That's right. That's right. The and Nissan so, Altima they claimed was stolen and the other truck he said he traded in. That's right. Because they had mysteriously gotten rid of a reasonably new car. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe the fact that they found those cars, they were able to track them down and we're going to do forensic analysis on mm-hmm. them. That may have been the big thing. But I think what you have to do with a nobody homicide charge is have an airtight case where if you have a victim available and you start to find this evidence, you can say, okay, we can put two and two together with some of the circumstantial evidence because this case has no, the her remains haven't been mm-hmm. found. And she's, as you know, Susan Flores wants to say, well, she's just missing. I know they had her declared dead, but she could be out there somewhere. Bull shit yeah so but because you technically cannot you know that's some part of the what you have to prove is that he he did in fact kill her and you don't have that body the circumstantial evidence has to be extensive so i think they have just been socking it away and and really trying to build a case and so it seems like it's taken such a really long time but in fact you're just saying listen we're gonna go in and it's gonna be i mean i'm surprised they i mean they maybe haven't heard all the evidence yet the defense i know that they haven't so there may be like a plea you know just depending on how much evidence they have so i think maybe the agent hears this evidence and is like oh that's a slam dunk and tells her that to get which sadly kind of gets her hopes up when Mm -hmm. there's been no movement for almost a year for over yeah i'll tell you another thing that just highlights how not savvy paul is if you know you've killed dude, someone dude why are you hanging on to decades old cell phones and computers and other electronics yeah that's, that's a great question my lord unless he thinks you know if i as long as i have them then you know why wouldn't you have smashed them or soaked them in water i've never needed to get rid of all that shit yeah i guess dump them in dump them in water or something but yeah Upon the warrant being served on February 5th at Ruben Flores' house at 719 White Court, witnesses would later report that just four days later, Ruben and two accomplices engaged in some yard work after dark, digging up an area beneath his deck. Thirteen months later, on March 15th, 2021, an additional search warrant was executed on the house at White Court, 
complete with ground-penetrating radar and cadaver dogs. According to the Smarts lawsuit, the investigators focused on the area beneath the deck where quantities of dirt had been removed. Well. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yet another search warrant was served on Ruben Flores at his house on White Court, this time on Tuesday, April 13th, 2021, that same day, nearly 25 years after the disappearance of Kristen Smart. Paul Flores and his father, Ruben, were arrested simultaneously at their homes by coordinated teams of officers. Paul was charged with first-degree murder and held without bail. The statute of limitation on rape has expired, but because Paul was either raping or attempting to commit rape against Kristen at the time of her murder, that forms the basis for charging him with first-degree murder, a felony in California. Reuben was charged with accessory after the fact to murder and faced a bail of $250,000. A judge later lowered his bail to just $50,000, of which 10% Reuben had to pay to be released. He paid the funds, surrendered his passport, and is subject to electronic monitoring, according to KSBY News. Yeah, they argued that he's too old and infirm and he would suffer. If he oh, was boo kept. fucking who. Yes. You know who suffered? The Smart family for 25 years. Yeah. And their their poor daughter suffered a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. So they they got him. They, they arrested him. I think that's the... <sighs> It's one of those where you want to say, oh, it's closure. It's great. for the-. It's not. You know, they still want to find her and they mm-hmm. are still. Then we talked about it in a previous episode. You know, they had offered him a deal before. That yes. Said, and I went just back. Tell us. Yeah. I went back and listened to that part of your own backyard. And the deal was if he would plead to involuntary manslaughter, he would get six years in prison and they would drop the civil case against him. But he also had to lead them to her body. Mm-hmm. And before they could even consider it, his attorneys pulled it off the table. Wow. Well, I mean, it's what what did the sheriff say? All we need is Paul to tell us yes. where the body is. That's all. Otherwise, we can't move forward. And the D.A. now says, nope, we've done a previous case uh, with a no body homicide and we were able to secure a conviction. So we're convinced. And I, I think they're they must have uh, substantial evidence. Good. And somebody also asked, you know, because Ruben's been arrested now and he wasn't technically part of the, you know, he he was and he wasn't. I think there was conjecture, obviously, with the witnesses that he was digging up his yard in the middle of the night with two uh, accomplices. But someone asked on uh, Instagram, why hasn't the dad, you know, why hasn't Ruben pled the fifth in previous depositions uh, they, I believe the question was, why wasn't he able to take the fifth in previous depositions? I couldn't find anywhere that he wasn't able to or that he wasn't allowed to. Uh, from what I heard to the clips on your own backyard of the depositions and the civil suits, he just was freely answering, which you're allowed to do. You know, the fifth is yours to invoke. You can wave it and just keep on talking. Um, and, you know, even though he wasn't under investigation at the time, he was... He knew what he did, but the police hadn't said, oh, you're a person of interest as an accomplice or an accessory. You know, the Fifth Amendment is just a protection against self-incrimination. It doesn't mean that you're admitting guilt to a crime. It doesn't mean that, you know, I'm being I'm under investigation of the crime and I don't want to say anything because it will implicate me in it. It's just anything that you think will be unfairly used against you. And so I guess, you know, in his judgment, he didn't think that any of the things he were saying at the civil suit depositions throughout the years was incriminating towards him in any way. 
Is that something that the police are going to go comb through and find, you know, inconsistencies in his stories, especially regarding, you know, who, where the truck was or did they get rid of it? Was it really lost? You know, Ruben was a lot more loose answering questions. He was also very careful with his words and and not very forthcoming and would take just painfully long pauses before he would answer. But there were gross inconsistencies yeah i mean within the same breath he would change his story about where things were how mm-hmm. things had happened so and how you Paul could easily the pick guy. it apart yeah. yeah and i think they can you know if it's sworn testimony you know you want to use that to impeach the witness and say to a jury hey we have this sworn testimony uh that he swore under oath that he was telling the truth now he's telling you a different story when do you you know just you do that to just impeach him and make him look untrustworthy so that mm-hmm. the jury won't believe him so but it's it's not that he wasn't able to you know that i heard i think it's just he again not savvy people but they sure think they're savvy it's the mm-hmm. that old danger of you're too dumb to know how dumb you are mm-hmm. dan dow the st louis obispo county district attorney said in a press conference held shortly after the arrest it is alleged that Mr. Flores caused the death of Kristen Smart while in the commission of or attempted rape. The allegation against Reuben is that he helped to conceal Kristen's body after the murder was committed. Later, when asked if he knew where Kristen was killed, Dow replied, The last place where Kristen was seen was close to the dorms and near Mr. Flores's dorm. We certainly believe that Mr. Flores's dorm was a crime scene. According to the New York Times, Dow went on to say, We do have evidence in this case that leads us to conclude that there very well may be additional victims in the Southern California area. At this point, we are concerned about sexual assault. The DA's office filed an 1108 notice, which informed Paul that the DA intended on using evidence of his other sexual crimes in order to prove the crime against Kristen. Paul has been linked to three other sexual assaults, according to authorities. He made a very specific call to action. If you've seen this man in a bar acting inappropriate towards a woman, taking a woman who is like half conscious home, they're trying to build a case that we don't have her body to prove forensically what he did, but we have a pattern of behavior both before and after that he is a uh, sex offender. He's a predator. Yeah. The interview with one of his former employees at the Coca-Cola bottling plant on your own backyard is also... Very chilling. Mm-hmm. And she just describes how all the women were so creeped out by him and he would be so inappropriate and aggressive and would just stare at them mm-hmm. for just way too long and make them uncomfortable and try and ask them out all the time and they wouldn't take no for an answer. And he asked her out repeatedly and she was always said no. And he said, let's just go to this bar down the street. If if you get drunk, don't worry. I'll take care of you. You can spend the night at, at my house. And she Chilling. went and told her her boss and said, he creeps everybody out. And now he has said this, which has made me really uncomfortable. And she started having people walk her to her car. And Mm-mm. then in the break room, one day they're all sitting around. Paul's not there, but. On the TV comes on a special about Kristen Smart and up pops Paul's picture. And they all said, oh, shit. And then Paul walked in as, at a commercial break, got some coffee, coffee and left before it came back on. But they're like, that's totally him. I mean, that's the thing. He would because at that point he was living in San Pedro, which I learned the locals call it San Pedro. San Pedro, yes. But we we all call it San Pedro. We don't want another love land, love loop situation. <laughs> but, you know, if you, it'd be like if one of us committed a crime here and then we moved to 
Amarillo, yeah. people up there might not know what we had done. You yeah, know? you might not. And it's, if it's pre-podcast and it was just now getting picked up by national media on that TV special that they were watching, that they mm-hmm. may not, it may not be in the, you know, in the news as much and in people forefront of people's minds. But you know that feeling of where you have a gut reaction, intuition, just like they said with the scholarship, you know, woman's intuition. Anybody has that natural on, you know, somebody treats you like that or behaves like that, acts like a predator towards you. You are naturally on guard. The It is horrifying to see that he is involved in the attack and death of a woman, but also slightly vindicating, right? That you're like, I fucking knew it. I knew that guy. I knew I was right to be afraid of him. I'm so Mm -hmm. glad I said something. I'm so glad I had somebody because it's so, I mean, egregious that he just has walked free for 25 years. And like we said, he's not only the three that they've tied him to, the DA seems to indicate there's a string across Southern California. So that's why they're asking if you've seen this guy in a bar in these areas, you know, in the San Pedro, anywhere, San Luis Obispo area, they believe that there are more than just the victims that have come forth so far. He has this pattern since high school. Yeah. So I imagine there's a lot of victims that, unfortunately, if he had been put behind bars back in 96, would not have been victims. Yeah. And, And probably a lot of like what... Chris Lambert uncovered on your own backyard people who had a lot of near misses with him, Mm -hmm. maybe not even someone that had such a long encounter with them as somebody that you worked with, but who knows you're in a bar and he's in, oh my gosh, that's the guy that approached me. I mean, the the, the DA's office wants everybody to reach out because all of it will go to building this case that he committed the sexual assault, which is key to proving first degree felony murder. On April 22nd, 2021, the Smart's attorney filed a lawsuit against Ruben Flores for intentional infliction of emotional distress. James Murphy later amended the petition to add Doe's one and two as defendants, who were later revealed to be Susan Flores and Mike McConville. The petition alleges that Ruben Flores and Doe defendants one and two worked through the night and under cover of darkness to remove the remains of Kristen Smart to avoid having those remains at 710 White Court in the event of an additional search of the property and alleges this move happened in February of 2020. Well, there we have it. If Mike is helping them move the remains, Mm -hmm. it stands to reason he knew about this the entire time. And if he's palling around with the chief of police, then, you know, maybe there's a reason that um, it was speculated early on that they were getting tipped off to searches at their house Mm -hmm. and... It's I'm not saying that is what happened, but I'm not saying that's not what happened, in my opinion, because it all the pieces kind of fall into place when you look at it under that lens. Well, and it's one thing if, you know, you are getting these tips, you're getting them somehow. Mm-hmm. And if they've been texted or emailed or even maybe a call and the previous, you know, cops in charge didn't care and were the ones that were feeding you the tips. And now or, you know, it was an unrelated you know department somehow heard about a warrant. But now you have a sheriff that is enforcing rules and has a lot of oversight. That's going to come out. And hopefully if there there was some kind of tip offs going on, that the corruption will be unearthed. And those people hopefully are no longer law mm-hmm. enforcement officers. But if they still are, get uh, their their badges stripped from them. Uh, and also, I think, you know, adding somebody to a lawsuit 
you're, you know, the requirement, the standard of evidence, the burden of proof that they have to prove in a civil suit is much lower than beyond a reasonable doubt. But I think that is a door that's opened to now Susan and Mike being charged criminally. Mm. According to the suit, witnesses saw the trio on the night of February 9th, 2020, working under Ruben's house. This evening yard work came less than a week after the sheriff's department served the February 5th search warrant on Ruben's home. The Smarts petition makes a clear argument. Had Kristen's remains not been hidden, rehidden, and then moved yet again, it is reasonably likely the Smarts could have been reunited with the remains of their daughter and would have been permitted the opportunity to conduct a burial service at which their daughter could be laid to rest in a place of honor and dignity, as opposed to the present circumstances where their daughter's body was being discarded like human garbage. On May 17, 2021, Paul and Ruben Flores appeared via Zoom before the San Luis Obispo County Criminal Court Department's Fives, Judge Craig Van Ruyen. Defense Attorney Robert Sanger appeared on behalf of Paul, while Harold Messick was seated beside Ruben Flores in an office. Paul appeared from jail and waived his right to be in the courtroom. The purpose of this pre-preliminary hearing was to confirm the dates for future hearings that will occur before trial. This is the one that you were rudely kicked out of. Yes, I Zoom zoom uh, inappropriately slipped in the Zoom. <laughs> you Zoom bombed them. The parties agreed to a second pre-preliminary hearing on June 21st, and agreed that the preliminary hearing will occur on July 6th. Deputy District Attorney Christopher Perverell confirmed for the judge they expect the preliminary hearing to last 12 full days, at which both sides will present their evidence to allow the judge to determine if there is probable cause to move forward with the trial. Perverell also confirmed to the judge, We have discovered substantial material to the defense already, and there will be additional discovery as investigation is ongoing. We will provide it as soon as we get it. Paul's attorney said he looked forward to receiving that additional evidence. The parties will meet again on June 21st. Yeah, 12 full days for a preliminary hearing. That's going to be the one to watch because they will have to lay out piece by piece every piece of evidence in order and the defense will lay out their rebuttal to that and then the judge can determine. But 12 days tells me that is a lot of probable cause. Is there a jury at at those? No, or I believe is it just no, a, judge? a judge. In California, my understanding is that a preliminary hearing is before a judge only. So this is just to determine if there's enough evidence to take it to trial. Yes. Which, if there's 12 days worth of material, you'd think that they have a lot to present. Pretty sure they do. And what uh, the DA said, the deputy DA said, we've discovered material. That means they've provided to the defense in discovery pre-preliminary hearing. So the defense will see everything that's going to be presented before the preliminary hearing. So you have to give up. If you're the state, you got to give everything to the other side, to the defense. Otherwise, that is a violation of constitutional rights. In Texas, it's called the Michael Morton rule. And there's also, you know, the Brady decision is a Supreme Court case uh, regarding turning over what could be potentially exculpatory evidence. Um, But this is a situation where, if as they are turning over all this evidence to Paul's attorney and Ruben's attorney, they could turn and go, you're fucked like you're this mm-hmm. is a lot. On the flip side, their argument still is you cannot prove she's dead. You cannot. You have no body. How are you ever going to prove she's dead? The sheriff has said, you know, 
they would obviously say they would make an announcement if they're her. The second her remains are found, Sheriff Parkinson said we will make an announcement. So I think we would hear that in the news before we would you know hear it at this hearing. But that could be the other tactic. You know, the defense kind of has two things, two ways to go about this. Say, I'm going to go down. They're trying to prove felony murder because I was sexual. You know, I was in the middle of a sexual assault at the time of her death. And if they bring all this sexual assault evidence, the jury may believe that. Also, they're going to just hate him when they meet. I mean, <laughs> based and on how all of his they history, not know who he is too. That's going to be real hard to find a jury that doesn't know about this case. Oh, it's going to take yeah years of jury, so not years, but it will take. It will be a significant amount of time for jury selection. So, I mean, as a defense attorney, you either say, "Okay, this is a lot of evidence, but it's still there's still no body. Maybe we have some negotiating leverage with." The DA, again, of if you let us plead out, we'll tell you where the remains are. Or if the the defense attorney is just really, really aggressive, they could just say, prove your case. We're not we're not agreeing to anything. Prove your case. So if they did another plea like they tried before with you serve six years to involuntary manslaughter as long as you tell us where the body is. But you're if their defense is there's no body, so you can't get him on first degree murder. But then part of the plea is you have to tell us where the remains are. Then doesn't that contradict what their their plea is? Well, because he's admitting that there is a body. Well, yeah. I mean, so at the end of the day, you have to prove your case at trial, whatever you charge him with. So if you're going to charge him with manslaughter and try to, you know, prove because of all these, you know, we can at least prove she was in the room. We can, based on the cadaver dogs, prove that she was dead in his room. We just can't prove. And the reason why I think they're saying sexual assault to bump it to felony first degree murder, because I don't think they can prove that it was premeditated. If it happened, I don't yeah. want to say accidentally, but it happened in the course of did he hit her head on the ground? Did he maybe there was strangulation? There was there's so many, you know, it would just be conjecture. So I don't think mm-hmm. you can prove premeditated, but they want to go for that higher uh, that higher charge. That's why they're bringing in this. And I don't think it's unreasonable because they do have the significant evidence of subsequent sexual assaults but you're i mean i think you're right logically your brain would say as a da well he's telling us where the body is but when you know that's the problem when you make this deal so do they say we're not going to make a deal with you because we have enough evidence and they think they can now that they are genuinely searching all these places they're thinking they're going to actually be able to find her somehow Mm -hmm. maybe that i mean maybe they charge Susan Flores and Mike McConville and he cracks you know somebody may break you know and the sister may know you know whatever that's all conjecture based on the the significant digital evidence that the DA talked about that when they searched her home too yeah so there's she was one of the search warrants something being you know who knows somebody or they you know Paul's drunk at a bar and told somebody that's what happened in the the cadet murders in Texas so people just Mm -hmm. run their mouths or anybody that now because it's the circle has gotten wider if Paul killed her and had Reuben help in the middle of the night and they didn't tell Susan until 2007 when they had to move mm-hmm. the body from Susan then she gets looped in well then Mike has to get looped in well then they loop the daughter you know once the circle starts expanding that's a lot of consciences that maybe tell somebody that could then come forward and say yeah they told me on February 2020 you know they moved her or they say mm-hmm. we tracked the this car and we saw where they drove the car you know when they moved her you know, anyway there's a lot of ways for them to try to find this on their own and they don't need to play ball with him but that's going to be interesting to see once those 12 days of evidence come out, what deal the Flores attorneys will try to negotiate, if any, and what the DA is willing to negotiate when they have 20, 25 years of evidence, mm-hmm. really in the last 10 years is good evidence. But when they have that much, like, what do you need to negotiate? 
except and, for her yeah. location. What a feather in that DA's cap, too. I mean, everyone wants to be the the attorney that puts Paul Flores behind bars. And I don't think so. they'll, they'll bungle it, which I think seeing how long it took from February 2020 till the arrest, mm-hmm. that kind of tells you they're, they're playing the slow game because the family wasn't going anywhere. Right. Although at a press conference, District Attorney Dan Dow would not reveal details, he confirmed investigators had retrieved electronic communications and text that have been helpful in the case. The DA continued, saying, In our view, in the totality, we believe we can go forward and prosecute Mr. Flores for the murder of Kristen Smart. The San Luis Obispo County Sheriff stated at a news conference that they have not yet located Kristen's body. And he's repeatedly said, the day we find her, we will tell you. Upon the arrest of Paul and Ruben Flores, the Smart family issued a statement. As reported by the New York Times, it said, in part, It is impossible to put into words what this day means for our family. We pray it is the first step to bringing our daughter home. Any individuals with any information about Kristen's case or any incidents regarding Paul Flores, including assaults or other criminal acts, are encouraged by the district attorney to contact San Luis Obispo County Crime Stoppers at 805-549-7867 or online at www.slotips.org. Donations to the Kristen Smart Scholarship can be made at www.kristensmart.org. So what do we think? I got to rescind my what do we think from last time because I do or amend it that I do think that she was at Branch Street, so Susan's house, until 2007. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's when she was moved to White Court to Ruben's house. And then I think she was moved from Ruben's house February 2020, location undetermined. So in 2007, after the ground penetrating search where the garage had been built and they she wouldn't allow them into a bunch of stuff, you think she was there at that time? I and think then she was after the that search, she got, yes. Do you think Susan knew? I think Susan did not know during the initial search when the journalist described her as being really blasé Mm -hmm. and you're not going to find anything and Ruben was shitting his pants and then as soon as they left and they said we found some anomalies we're going to come back and dig the concrete up Ruben had to tell her and say listen lady it's back here we got to fucking do something and after that she started acting out and you know getting more bold and bold with people on the street coming up to her house and stuff and then after that she's like you can search my backyard all you want you're not going to find anything it's because she knew after that, there wasn't anything yeah. back there. And then that's when it was, she was moved to Ruben's, underneath Ruben's de- deck, I believe. And then it sounds like was moved from there in February 2020. I tend to agree. The only question I have is if she didn't know that she was back there in 2007, why wasn't she more compliant with them searching all areas of the yard? I wonder if Ruben told her. You think, well, then he would have had to have told her before the search. That's true. And the journalist was saying during the search that she she was was very, like, yeah, just, like, smug about it. Like, y'all aren't going to find anything. Unless she did know. And she was like, I know that I gave y'all these parameters. You can't go around and so you're not going to find anything. I think that that is what is going to come from the, the way that David Dow, the district attorney, 
said, or I'm sorry, Dandel, the district attorney said, you know, we have retrieved significant electronic communications and texts specifically in the last year or two, but also on Paul's old cell phones and from his old laptop and maybe old email. You know, they've, again, they've left some kind of trail. And so I think who knew what when will come out later on, especially as now the smarts are suing Mike McConville and Susan Flores, Mm -hmm. they're going to have discovery and try to dig into that. Meanwhile, the sheriffs may say, oh, this is, again, it's an ongoing criminal investigation of these two. They have not announced that yet. But I think based on those witnesses that came forward to the police and also that the family knows about and are using as a basis of amending their lawsuit, that there's something there. And he said at the, Dan Dow said at the press conference, we're not. They said, "Are you going to plan? Are, do you plan on ch- charging Susan Flores?" He said, "We're not ruling anybody out. We're we're leaving it open that we can charge whoever we want, whenever we want, based on the investigation as it is ongoing." So I would not be surprised if something came out based on those witnesses from February 2020 that she would get arrested also, and Mike McConville also as accessories after the fact. So get them all. Yeah, get some answers. Most importantly, find the remains. Yeah. Where do you think they might be now? That's a great question. You know, it would be if you had a whole avocado grove. And I think the witnesses said they saw them digging. I don't know that it said then we saw them drive away. I think that's going to be for the police to investigate if they haven't already investigate. You know, did they one of them drive off in the car and then they ran a red light and we got a license, you know, and find Mm -hmm. whatever. Or like if there's cameras in the street that capture, you know, traffic or if they moved her somewhere on the property that they already own. And it's just a matter of, you know, shifting or completely off the property or totally somewhere different. And yeah, I think, though, they want them close to them. I think so so. they can keep an eye on things. And obviously that's what they've done for 25 years. There are some interesting Theories and other things that Chris Lambert discusses on your own backyard about other areas people have mm-hmm. found things and, you know, um, wilderness type areas in the woods. A shoe was found and some other people claim to have seen Reuben in a certain area and and Paul on Memorial Day weekend that they speculate maybe they were driving out to you check on to it to bury something. Yeah. Or to. Yeah. But. I think that I I agree that she was buried at the East Branch Street, then moved and most likely was dug up in 2020. And I believe that she is probably still on that property. Had the had the dogs alerted to the the patio? It's I believe it's underneath the deck. So why did they? My, that's that's what trips me up is why would they move her? Why would they dig her up from there just to move her to another part on the property if they knew dogs and possibly ground penetrating radar were going to come back to that property and do a more extensive search? I don't know. And, and maybe and that's the sad part is that unless one of them cracks or somebody that they've told, you know, finally says... Who's to say they didn't go throw it in the ocean, you know, throw her over mm-hmm. a bridge? They have something sad and disrespectful because they've clearly shown they have no respect for her. They have no respect nah. that this was a human woman that lived a life and had a soul and was alive. And they've like exactly what the the lawsuit said. They've discarded her like human garbage. They've just mm-hmm. dumped her from place to place. And there's I mean, again, your own backyard has a ton of stuff. There's we could do a 10 parter on this, too, you know, because 
there's so much of, but from moment one, you know, it said possibly he put her in a garbage bin and rolled her in a trash cart across campus. Mm -hmm. So from second one, they've had no respect for her or her family. So why would they, why would it change now? Nah. She was a problem that they had to clean up to protect their shitbag son. Yep. Well, these have been three doozies. We're going to do something a little more lighthearted next episode. Mm -hmm. Someone asked us that on Twitter. I said, you know our formula. It's like you you listen to the show before. We like to to give our brains a little bit of a break. Although, is it a brain break? You're going to read the notes and be like, oh, gosh, there's a lot going on here. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Yeah. It's still, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. But this one, I'm glad we did it because, man, it's... um, as much as enraged as this made me, these things light a fire under me and remind me like why I wanted to start podcasting in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's good to feel that passion and get that fire lit. And we're gonna do it. Heather. We're doing it. We're, we're doing gonna. It. We're gonna help bring justice to a case. We're working on some things right now. We've got them on the burners. We've got them on the burners. Yes. Something will. I, I. I would love to do what Chris Lambert did for the Smarts, mm-hmm. which is. Let them know nobody's forgotten about this and Mm -hmm. hopefully be the conduit between police and the witnesses that are out there that maybe haven't stepped forward yet. So, again, if you know anything or know anybody knows anything or it's a rumor about somebody that saw Paul Flores do something, all of that stuff is super important. So definitely Mm slotips.org. Head there. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Ruling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, which this month is going to be the update on Love Has Won, which... A lot going on there. You also get patron-exclusive video and audio content, including Am I the Asshole, relationship advice segments where we read what Reddit has to offer, and our new favorite, Judge Christy, where Christy lays down the law. It's my new fave. You also now have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We'll also be hopping on occasionally and hosting monthly Q&As where you can ask us all your burning questions. Our next one is this Saturday at 2 p.m. Central Time. And I believe the link is up now on yep. Instagram and all other sorts of other places to uh, register for it. Yep. It's uh, May 22nd, 2 p.m. Central. And yeah, go to Sinister.com. Uh, and I'll put the link in the show notes as well as uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's, we, we put it all over the place. Mm-hmm. Or Sign up for Patreon. It's right there. Boom. Gotcha. (laughs) For our patrons not in the U.S., you now have the option of paying pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit SinisterHood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. And if you want some cool Sinisterhood swag like T-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop in the top banner. 
The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at? I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I am on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy.